So I'm finding all this out fucking two days before I graduate rehab, right? Like I'm feeling good. I'm ready to get out there. And then I find out that I'm facing 32 counts of forgery, identity theft, and theft by unlawful taking, which was a minimum of seven years in prison. And that my car is most likely getting repossessed. So... Welcome to the show, Abby. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad. Tiffany sent message me and said, you got to talk to my friend, Abby. She's got a story to tell. And I Aww. said, send her my way. Because anybody that Tiff says that about, I know it's a story. Because that's somebody with a story. That's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know you're on the same page yeah. with her. When she... No, it's so true. And her story is an inspiring one. She's yeah. killing it. She's saying things that she's so talking proud about of her. people don't that people don't talk about a lot. So I love it. Yeah. I love watching her grow. There's somebody, you know, local and they, you know, were talking to me about addiction and they trying to stop, you know, fentanyl and, you know, and they come to my meetings and they start to open up a little bit and they're like, I'm completely alone. I, I'm I'm the only one this has happened to. And as soon as she started opening up, I was like, This sounds familiar. Boom, Katie TikTok, boom, tip TikTok, boom, boom, boom. And she's like, oh, my God, and got really emotional because she wasn't alone. Right. It, it's and I really told both of them, and they're like, yeah, tell her to add me and tell her to message me whenever because, like, spot oh, on. Same. That's amazing. So, you know, welcome. Well, I already said welcome. So what is your sobriety date? So I go all the way back. It's been four years off of my drug of choice. Um, I am abstinent from all mind-altering substances. So April of 2017 is the last time I was in rehab. Um, been sober ever since. Was not the first time, second time, or third time I had been to treatment. Um, but there was a lot of things about that last time that were different that I think were like key points of why I am still sober today. And how I What was the exact date? Um, the 14th. Okay. I, I went in my first rehab April 25th, 2018. Oh, okay. so almost exactly a year later, I was doing my first stint. In oh, that's cool. You know, first and only knock on some whatever, you, I know, you know, Um, I did have a relapse, but it wasn't a, like a gnarly one where I needed rehab. It was a relapse with drinking and I didn't go overboard at to, all. Yeah, I've been there. I've been I, w there. I was so even then I was like fucked in my head. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to work the steps every day still because I think yeah. the steps are so important. So I think because I was working the steps, I was constantly checking myself and doing it, you know, it's step 10. If you're yep. familiar with them, I was yep. constantly doing a step 10 life. and I never went overboard. I didn't get a DUI. I didn't like, you know, drive, drink and drive or hurt anybody or hurt myself. It, right. it stopped eventually because I woke up hungover. Okay. And I woke up hungover and I realized I drank a bottle of Jack. And then it was like, oh, yeah, this is what I don't want to hang over. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. it was February 29th. And I'm like, leap day is a perfect sober date. So yeah. yeah, my wife and I quit that day. Oh, did you years. both quit at the same time? Well, yep. good for you guys. That's so that's that's really, really cool. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things, actually, was um, following an actual program, doing it all, though. Right. Like not picking and choosing what I wanted to do, like. Yeah. I'm going to ask this person to be my sponsor, but I'm not going to call her ever, you know, or I'm going to go to meetings and I'm not going to work the steps. I have done so much of that. I've tried a faith-based program. I, I, I did it all. And the very last thing I attempted was to work the program the way they tell us to work it here in my hometown, ironically. So those two things, because I did a lot of running back and forth from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to California. Me too. Did you? 
I was in Culver City. Okay, I was in Orange County. Um, okay, I have friends I, that work in rehab in Orange County. Yeah, I worked in rehab in Orange County for a long time, actually. Probably um, know them. It's interesting. <laughs> they've probably I, been on this. They they were on this show. I I very well <laughs> could know them. I know so many people in in the rooms. In oh Cal- my god! In, in Orange County. How much different? How much different is Southern California meetings from Pennsylvania? Because well, like when I came back, I was in Hershey. And it was culture shock for me because like well, I was, that was just a AA there for me. Yeah, I, I gained all these tools in California. Right. And I knew what I was supposed to do. I wasn't necessarily doing it, all of it. Right. And so that was a big issue for me was I was learning how to get sober in Orange County, which is beautiful. It's fun. It's pretty. It's it's a great place. But the issue was I wasn't learning how to handle family right or toxic people or you know i have a daughter i was she's she just turned seven um on the 5th of january but at this time she was really young and i wasn't learning any of the tools that i was going to need long term as my end goal was to return to pittsburgh right so i i'm doing the damn thing out there i came home i don't think i made it a week i'm serious i mean i was sober out there for over a year and um, And uh and thriving right thriving thriving yeah yeah, and then I came home and moved in with my parents, which I've learned that I I can't do. I love them both to death, but my mom and I, we just, we can't, especially as me being a mother, right? Because then she's kind of stepping on my toes, and there's this, like, well, she's been helping so much when I'm gone. Like, do I have the right to say this or that? And she wasn't really letting letting me parent at all. And so we were just butting heads, and I couldn't stand it. And I'll never forget the day I told them I was going to a meeting, and I was doing the total opposite from going to a meeting and that just started a long road of more wreckage and pain and um yeah I mean we can get more into that oh we will (laughs) kind of of my story and how I ended up you know I like to jump around like Tarantino you start in the middle and then you go that's how I am I'm not when you know I made a joke I actually made a video on my TikTok about this one time you know when you go to impatient and you and you gotta do you have to do your intake right and they're asking you dates and times and when did you first start smoking weed and when did you and I'm like lady it is a the whole thing is a blur like ten years I do not know the timeline of a single thing and I always make jokes about it because I'm like that was always the worst part for me was the intakes I'm like I couldn't tell you a timeline to save my life yeah you know even with like oh and I've I've, I've had a lot of sobriety <laughs> days and. Yeah. So even today, I'm like, oh. I, I remember my intake. I was just like, it's everything except for heroin, crack, and meth. Just mark me down. Just, just mark, mark me down. down. Just mark yeah, it it's down. easier to say what you haven't done. I'm the same way. Same thing. I'll tell you what I didn't do. Yeah, just just check off the rest. I promise you it's there. Exactly. I know. Oh, my God. Um. So have you always been from Pittsburgh? Yeah, I was born here, grew up here. I was here up until, you know, the first time that my family recommended, well, didn't recommend, gave me an ultimatum that I needed to go to treatment. And at first it was. It was a cute word you did there, Abby. I know, I tried to be, I caught myself. (laughs) Yeah, no, you know, it was like, uh, we, you can't, you, you can't be in our lives if you don't go. And so at first it was that I'll show them and I'll be so successful. And then when I, when, when I can prove them wrong. You know, I won't even speak to them the day that, you know, I, I thought I was going to seriously prove them wrong and I was going to thrive. Um, I think it took a month and I called my mom and I, I'll never forget that morning. I woke up, same thing, very hungover, very sick. And at this point, I still hadn't really known what it was like to withdraw. 
actually. And so I was feeling like shit. A lot of it was mentally super depressed, just a lot of mental health stuff, which I've dealt with a lot of my life, even before drugs. And, um, I just, I'll never forget that morning calling her and telling her that I, you know, she was right. I gave it and I set the ego and pride aside and I told her I needed help. But of course me being me, I wanted to go to California. You know, I had never been, I'd always wanted to go and uh, I made it about me, which I didn't realize at the time, but that's what I was doing. And I don't regret it. I learned a lot, but I ended up having to learn how to get sober all over again here in Pittsburgh. And that was the final time I went and, you know, what led me to be sober to this day. But it took a lot of jumping back and forth across the country. And I finally learned that wherever, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) I moved 30 times in 15 years. Did you? And I'm talking not even like small moves. There was a bunch of small moves, but there was also to Massachusetts, to Jersey, Jersey to Massachusetts, back and forth. Um, I went to North Carolina for a year after my fiance died. Um, oh my God, I'm sorry. Wow. She was really sick. She was bipolar and schizophrenic. So. Oh, that's hard. Um, you know, yeah, it, you know, suicide sucks, and mental health, mental health isn't wasn't talked about nearly as much as it is today in 2015 when it happened it's so true that's like it o- it's only six seven years ago but yet you know Such she a- was she was losing childhood friends because they didn't know how to deal with her oh that's horrible you know and i hate that word deal that's why i put it I know. In, you know like with that burden. with the hair quotes because like you live with you don't deal with yes um and we were childhood best friends so but okay I learn how to deal with grief now and sobriety because I definitely couldn't deal with that shit being, mm-hmm. you know, an alcoholic drug addict. Right. So let's really rewind your story. Yeah. It started in Pittsburgh. When did your parents are still together to this day? It sounds like they are. They are. So yeah. are mine. So we got that awesome. in common. Um, now, brothers and sisters. I do. I have two. I have a brother and a sister. They're both are older. You- so I'm the baby. You're the baby. It's mm-hmm. always the oldest or the baby. The middle child is always just like skirting by addiction. I know. But, <laughs> but in middle child syndrome, I think, is their addiction. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. That, they, everything just, itself. yeah. But um, so you're the baby. And how, what's the age differences? I'm just curious. So there's a pretty big age difference, um, or at least it always felt that way to me. The older I get, the more I realize it's not as big as I always felt that it was in my head. Um, when we were younger, we were a lot closer as we got older. Is kind of when things changed. But I'm 27. Um, my sis, my brother's 31, and my sister's 33. Oh, that's so pretty it's, similar. It's, it's pretty similar to my situation. I'm nine years older than my baby sister, okay. and I'm three years older than my younger brother. Oh, that is. Um, yeah, it's pretty similar. Um, and wow. we're all we're all really close now, but we weren't then because okay. you know I was separating myself from everybody. Yeah. You right. know, I started drinking at eleven. Oh um, wow! You know, just to be cool. You know yeah. what I mean? Like we thought we were like the greasers. We watch outsiders and drink. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Um, but in sixth grade is when I drank alcoholically for the first time because a kid I knew was you know died. Um, as the first person that died in my life. And I literally said to my best friend, like, oh, well, we can drink and we'll feel better, right. you know. You so that's, ready. yep. And wow. that there it is. You know, I didn't wow. know that then. But looking back with doing the steps, when you look, retro, you know, you find it. When did yeah. you first start drinking? High school. I wasn't super, super young. Um, I'd probably say, you know what? No, it was the summer before freshman year of high school. 
I remember. I remember the exact time and where I was and how it went down. Yeah, it was the summer before freshman year. So, parties, just regular old parties. Yep. The first time was actually at my best friend's house, my my childhood best friend. It was at her home. It was just her, uh, me, and her cousin. It was just the three of us. And, you know, it was the good old take. We were taking her mom's alcohol. Wine coolers. Like, it was wine. exactly. It was like strawberry wine, daiquiri wine. It was like wine. white zin or something, you know. And then when we would do it at my house, it was like scotch, you know. We were filling up, we're filling up the bottle of scotch with water, thinking we're fourteen-year-old girls, fifteen-year-old yeah. girls drinking scotch like well, you're like a fifty-year-old you know, man. I swear to God, I tell people, I seriously think that's what made me. So just to fast forward for a second, like we go to family dinners. I always talk about this with just alcoholism and just like, like you said, looking back, you notice things when I turned 21. And at that point, everybody in the family at like birthdays and things like that, we all could drink me, my siblings, my parents, right? Everybody would get a glass of red wine. That was everybody's thing. My mom, my sister, and my brother, my dad would always get Jameson on the rocks or some nice fancy scotch, whatever. For whatever reason, I always wanted Jameson on the rocks. Like my dad, I, and I always wanted, like, in my mind for, I don't know why, I still don't know, but I always wanted to, like, prove to him that I could drink like he could. And my dad's not an alcoholic. He doesn't have any alcoholic tendencies. I mean, he drinks, like, a few times a month, maybe. Same as but my I parents. Was, yeah, like, I always felt the need to show him that I could drink like he could. Like, I could drink it straight, you know? And my dad, I will never forget, at dinner one night, he looked at me and he said, why can't you just have a glass of wine like the rest of them? And it was one of those moments that I didn't really, it didn't stand out to me until after I realized I was a, an alcoholic, but yeah, I mean, I always had to do, I always had to do the most. And so my friends back in high school, they'd always say, how can you drink that stuff? Whether it was Jose Cuervo or whatever. And that's what I'd always say. I'm like, well, I was raised on, you know, whatever my dad had in the bar in the basement, you know? So whatever whatever he was drinking is what we were drinking because that's what we could get our hands on <laughs> that's that's how i started my first drink was captain and coke yeah that's and because again my parents are they'll throw the party but they're not drinkers right so it's so there. the basement the basement would have just an overstock exactly. of liquor exactly same with and my- it wasn't like i wasn't even i've heard so many people tell me like oh i would you know pour water into it to refill it so they wouldn't notice i didn't have to do that because they didn't notice they didn't it because know. The next time they had a party, they just bought new bottles and then just brought the old ones back up and just went through them quickly. They weren't noticing that, you know, because they weren't drinking them regularly to even notice. So, you know, that was, and at 12 years old, I knew that shit. And we would take, oh my God. I remember the first time I drank Southern Comfort in like seventh grade. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. Like the things that, oh, I know exactly. Like the parties and the shit we did, like I, Luckily for us, none of us, when I say us, I mean my friends and I, like none of us were drink and drive. We lived in a small area in New Jersey, like one square mile town. We could walk everywhere. So we were always really responsible. I don't, I I went to the hospital once when I was 16 for alcohol poisoning. You know, apparently you're not supposed to drink a bottle of Bacardi in 10 minutes. I didn't know that. You know, that was the hard way, huh? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, oh. but I didn't get into like pills until I was 22. Okay. That was because alcohol stopped working by then. It right. it wasn't fun anymore. 21, I went so hard at the bars and everything. And this was 21 in 2007. When you were 21, 2007, the bars were doing like quarter shot night, all that kind of shit, like really promoting. They can't even do that anymore because people like us ruined it for everybody. You know. Exactly. <laughs> 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 they, 
So when did you find other drugs or were, are you always just an alcoholics alcoholic? No. So to be honest with you, alcohol's, um, alcohol ended up being kind of the least of what my issues were. When it when when things really now of course alcohol. It's like a very confusing thing though when that happens because then we think like well alcohol wasn't the problem it was the drugs. It started and then, with alcohol and now I you know I can I call myself an alcoholic I I choose an AA program I like the way AA works their steps um now I I'm not one of those people that's like I can drink you know I know better. I know that even if I could for a couple months, it's still going to lead to, you know, other. So, you know, I don't I don't drink, but I didn't care. I could have cared less about alcohol in my active addiction. I mean, I never drank. I didn't care. Neither did I. I only yeah, time I so. did. I did, though, it was to keep up appearances at parties. Well, if I was with family, if I was going to a family party. Yeah, I would drink. I would something. sip on it, but make it look like I'm going through a lot. This right. way they think I'm just drunk and not high. Well, that's a good cover. <laughs> you know, so that's the only time I really drank, drank was when, you know, it was like a setting with people that were drinking and I had to like not stand out that I wasn't. Front. That's a good you know. point. That's a good point. I was just kind of trying to think of if I ever did that. But when I think about it, I actually think I never even would go like I stopped going to parties or anywhere I was invited to. I don't even think I really did that because. I just didn't, I just only wanted to hang out with people who were doing dope. I mean, it's just so, it's crazy when I think about it, but I think you're I 27 went, now, right? 27 now. So yeah. you're born 95. 94. So 94. Okay. So, but still, okay. So when did you discover other things besides alcohol? So, all right, this is interesting. So, um, I definitely, so yeah, alcohol absolutely caused issues in my life. Before I ever went to rehab, I did get a DUI. Um, I did, um, I have a photo actually of this too. This is a separate time from the DUI. I drove home, a 25 minute car ride. I drove home on a rim, somehow made it home. Didn't get pulled over, didn't wreck, but drove home on a rim. Um, I will never forget. I don't remember anything. Obviously, when I woke up the next day, you know, my my daughter's father woke me up and was like, come and come and check out what you did last night. Because it was always something new. Right. And I'll never forget going out and just seeing this like melted rim. But from that night, all I remember is seeing sparks flying up my my window of the passenger side. Like I'm driving, I'm looking and I just see the sparks anyway. So Alpha was causing issues, right? Um, legally, mentally, all that. Now, I get pregnant with my daughter when I'm 19. With um, Bobby is, is her dad's name. And um, him and I had only been dating for three months. However, we had been best friends for about seven years. So we had, we had like a sturdy foundation yeah, with yeah. our friendship. So um, I went through nine months of pregnancy completely sober. You know, what things, thank God I hadn't found any anything else yet. Otherwise, I'm sure that would have been a lot harder. So I didn't drink. You know, I went through nine months of pregnancy. I had my daughter. You know, I'm, I was healthy. She was healthy. Everything was great. And then um, postpartum depression hit. And at the time, I didn't know what it was. And that's why it's so interesting. You know, when you talk about the difference from 2015 to even today, the way people talk about things, um, whether it be on social media or not. Um, I had no idea what postpartum depression was. I didn't know it was common. I wasn't like reaching out to people about it for support, but I did call a therapist and I did go see a doctor and I, the only, the only thing they did for me, I'll, they sent me home with a bottle of Xanax 
I saw the therapist, I talked to a psychologist and they prescribed me benzos, which now makes me irate, right? But yeah, because time, they because my in 2014 they sent my wife into 72 hour hold when she was postpartum. Really? But they but they didn't give her Xanax. I think they gave her like Ativan, which is like okay. fucking M&Ms comparatively. Right. Basically. <laughs> you know, we weren't together then, you know, so I don't know, you know what I mean? Yeah. But from what yeah. she's told me, like, I know for sure they didn't give her Xanax. And I'm pretty sure it was like a low level thing, but she got put on a hold with hers. <clears throat> so I know all about, you know, I've heard all about, you know, that from her. Um, right. Right. No, but, but they send you home with Xanax and now you're a person mm-hmm. that already likes the effects of alcohol. Yep. I like, I like, I like anything that's going to alter the way I think or the way I feel inside. And so it took probably not even a, well, definitely not even a month. Cause I know for a fact, I ran, ran out of that script early. I, this is the insanity that they talk about in AA, right? So here's an example for you. This was in the beginning before I found opiates, which is really when my life went downhill. And, um, I'll never forget one time. And so at this point, right, I hadn't known any like dealers or nothing, right? <clears throat> and mind you, my daughter's father has never touched a drug. And the main reason being, this is also interesting. He comes from a long line of addicts and alcoholics. His father passed away of an overdose uh, just a few years ago. The, um, it, he, a long line of, of addicts and alcoholics. And so Bobby saw that and, you know, consciously made a decision that that's not how he wanted his life to go. I come from, you know, a really good family, no addicts or alcoholics that I know of. And then what, you know, you compare it's it's crazy, you know, it's not always generational. A lot of the time it is, but with us, it was actually the opposite. So when I got that prescription, he was the first and the only person in my life to say, Abby, this isn't good. Like you can't take these. And I'm looking at him like he's nuts because they were given to me by a doctor. You're not a doctor, bro. Yeah. What do you know? You come from a bunch of addicts and alcoholics. You're just scared because of the way you grew up. Don't project that onto me, right, is the way I'm looking at it. I have a mom who's a doctor. Now, my mom has her PhD, but she's um, she's a she teaches undergrad nursing at a university here in Pittsburgh. She actually just retired a few months ago. But, uh, you know, so my mom's a doctor. She's all for medicine. And then I have him telling me, no, these are terrible. So anyway, I'm eating them to sleep, to get out of bed, to get ready for work. I can't go walk into my job until I take a few. I couldn't clean, do laundry, cook. I it got what to did the you point do for work? So at this point in time, I graduated beauty school pregnant, and I passed my state boards pregnant. So I got my first salon job pregnant. Did all of that while I was um, carrying my daughter. And then, um, yeah. So when I had her, I was working at a hair salon. When Were I you thought, like dipping out, cutting hair at all? <laughs> no. Like... So here's the good thing. Because I was so new in the industry, because I was working in crazy, crazy high-end hair salons here in Pittsburgh. And like the shady side area, Squirrel Hill. It's just like a lot of uptight. Like I, I used to do Mac Miller's mom's hair. Um, she made me cry a couple times. But. It was a lot of like uh, just people with money. And so I was an assistant for the longest time. So I would do touch-ups, shampoos. And actually, that's why I got out of the industry. Because I had got I, I was stuck assisting for so long that I started to lose my talent. And I wasn't getting any practice. So then I started to feel I had no confidence within my cutting skills. And that's a whole different story. But so I don't do hair anymore. I still keep up with my license just because it's something to have. And I'll do like weddings or freelance things here and there. But... I don't work. I don't, I don't do hair anymore. So that's a hard industry as it is. 
and then dealing with the type of clients that I was dealing with and my boss, I, I couldn't go in there without the benzos. So I, I mean, that was a big part of, I think what got me addicted to them besides like the postpartum depression and it being in my blood. But, um, I was going to say, and the actual effects that it was producing itself. Yeah. I mean, let's be, a lot of us are trying to fill voids. Fact. Whether we know we have voids or not, you know, I didn't yeah, know I had any subconscious. Voids, it could totally you know? subconscious. And I'm still finding them at like literally. Oh, oh same. Was it Christmas? We were hanging out and like my with my wife is my wife and you can smoke. People smoke cigarettes on my show. Okay. Um, so I don't feel bad about it. Um, so like we're hanging out with like, you know, her stepson's like 18 and we're talking and he's not really into sports. And I was realizing that I'd lost my love for sports when I was 11. I was obsessed with playing sports, but around 11 is when I stopped, is when I first realized, like, I'm not going to go pro. I, and that's when I started seeing the difference in the, in the kids that were way more athletic than I was. Okay. And I, it wasn't filling that void anymore. I still that's played. started drinking, right? 11? Yeah. And Very I didn't realize that until, like, two, three weeks ago. I, I was going to say, it's funny. I come <clears> up with, <throat> there's still so much stuff I don't know. I mean, I. I Which mean, is why I say recovering. Like, that's why I say recovering and not recovered. You know, I totally know. respect the people that want to say recovered. You know I understand what? why you do. I understand why you say it. I totally get that. It's in the book 17 times. I get that too. All for it. If you're that confident, I'm just recovering because I'm always doing something with something. Like I had three therapists in rehab because I wanted to fucking learn. Yeah, you want to know more about yourself. <laughs> yeah. I'm, see, for me... Um, saying I'm recovered for me is actually a red flag for me. And again, like you said, like I respect what anybody says. If somebody comes up to me and says they're recovered, I'm going to congratulate them. That's wonderful. But for me, actually, that's a red flag and say, you know, I mean, anything along those lines saying I'm recovered or saying that I think, you know, I'm no longer an alcoholic. Um, and I know that through experience, right? Like thinking that I, and actually I just had a girl, I just made a video about this. I had a girl in my, in my comment section and she was very kind and her intent was good, but she said, stop saying you're, you're recovering. You, you, you are recovered. And she, it was like, her intent was good. And she was trying to be nice, but I used that comment and I made a video to explain exactly what we're discussing because there is still so much that I have to learn. And yeah. I, and I said in the video, I have to make, a, I will fight this for the rest of my life, right? And that might sound horrible to other people um, or difficult to other people. But as we know, there are good days and there are bad days. But I have to make a conscious decision every morning when I wake up. Am I going to take a program with me for the day or am I going to leave it on the kitchen table? And some days I do leave it on the kitchen table. And by the end of the day, I, I realized that I did. It's not. You, you realize it when you're yelling at the person in traffic and I cut you, you off. You. And you're like, oh, when I'm shit. going 80 miles an hour driving with my knees. <laughs> like a like mad man. Off. Yeah, with my like Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets in my yeah. one hand. Literally. Yeah, like restless, irritable, discontent. And that is always how I know. I Same with my daughter. Maybe I don't have as much patience. And you know what? That's actually a big one with my daughter. Um, my parenting. I notice if I need to like check myself. Um, cause a lot of the time, that's like a big thing I've learned as a parent. It's really not my daughter's behavior that determines how our day is going to go. It's actually, it's, this mine. episode is sponsored by MJ's progress, not perfection meeting center association. We are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet. I can do this in a basement. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery. What I can't do from anywhere 
is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. So if you can help out, you know, we do have a Venmo, we have a Cash App, we have a PayPal, we have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on, and goes towards keeping the internet on. So please, you know, if you can get five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, it doesn't matter. Anything you can is so appreciated. And if you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever, and you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me and we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. But I'll let you get back to the episode. So now you get these benzos, you're going through them quickly, right? Um, Very much so. They're, I'm trying to present this in the right way. What happens? Because you, you had to have been like with a friend yep. or something that was like, oh, you could sell them. And then you it the light bulb went off and then all of a sudden you met a dealer and then that dealer said, well, try these. Mm -hmm. Well, so I get really I get really distracted really easily. What you reminded me of what I was going to say and that I must have went somewhere else. But so the first time I ran out of the script and I needed more. My solution, as somebody, like I said, who didn't know any other way, I call the pharmacy and I tell them, this is the good old, somebody stole my purse. Well, the pharmacy tells me that I can't get another prescription unless I actually I file a police report. report. So what do I do but throw my purse into the trunk of my car and, and call the police and tell them that my purse was stolen because I needed this police report. I needed, and you know, I mean, a benzo... Opiate withdrawals, yeah, you feel like you're dying, but benzos. You can like, literally oh, die. You can die, yeah. Like, you can I'm literally die. Naked. You can literally die, and I didn't know this at the time. I just knew that I did not feel good, and I was willing to go. I had a gnarly seizure from it. It's 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 scary, it really is. Even working in treatment, working in detox, I've seen yep. some some very scary things. So anyway, so I do that right after that whole incident. I'm like, I I can't do that once a month. You know, like that's not gonna work. So yeah, what and this kind of just they're going to catch on. <laughs> yeah, they're going to catch on. So this didn't really happen. Um, this wasn't like a conscious decision. Like I need to get something else. This kind of just happened naturally. I was so I was getting my own script. I had a really good friend that I'd um, grown up with who was able to get them from her mother's medicine cabinet. Um, and so I would call her if I needed some. Um, but then I had another friend who her boyfriend was into Percocet. So I'll never forget the first time um, she gave me a perk 10. She got it off. She said, you know, you got to try this, whatever. So, yeah, it was a friend. Um, so it was a perk 10 and I swallowed it again. It, I wasn't quite there yet. I didn't know other ways to do it. So I just ate it. Mind you, I had been on benzos, but I had never touched an opiate. So I swallow a whole perk 10 um, right before I'm going. And I can say this because she remembers this, too. Um I was going dress shopping with my mother for her mother of the bride dress for my sister's upcoming wedding. So before we go, we went out to lunch or it was dinner, I guess. And I, I spilled the coffee in my lap. I hit my face off the table and I'm telling my mom that I'm tired. I'm telling her I'm just tired, you know? So this was a huge red flag to my mom, right? She knew that, I mean, she, she's, my mom's naive, but, but she's one, not dumb. She's not dumb. And this one was a little too hard to fake. I'm sorry. I'm going to let my dog out while we're talking because she's going to keep ringing that bell. Um, is that what that is? That's adorable. That's, yep. Yep. Just a little bell on the doorknob that she rings. So that was my first experience with the perk. And um, that was the beginning of it all. So 
you know, to fast forward, and I know this is the same with a lot of opiate users. And um, how fast did you find 30s instead? Very probably within the same week. Uh, and then how fast were you sniffing them that day? So that day, but here's, <laughs> here's what's interesting. So I'm doing the 30s. Um, yeah, I quickly started sniffing them, um, and it within a month I had probably lost. I was living with some random dude who I didn't even like, but I needed somewhere to live. Um, Bobby, my daughter's dad, wasn't talking to me. My parents weren't speaking to me. This was around the time where they were giving me that ultimatum, you need help, and I'm saying, no, I don't. So, yeah, you know, around here at least, I could not get a 30 for under $40. I could not get one. One 30 I could not get for under 40 bucks. Sometimes I would pay $45. So the, it was clearly an expensive habit. So I say, you know, I end up breaking down and telling my mom I need to go to rehab. So I go to California. My The first time I go to inpatient, I am in Palm Springs in the desert. And it was a co-ed inpatient um, after your, I'm sorry, it was a co-ed detox. After you finished detoxing, it would then go into like 30 days women and the men were over here. So it was two separate. It's called Michael's house. Um, a lot of people, it, it's a pretty common one out there, but uh. I do, I get there and everybody's dope sick, right? Like everybody's hurting bad. And like I told you earlier, I had no idea what it was like to be sick yet at this point. So I'm not first thing in my mind, I don't belong here, right? I'm not an addict. I am not like these people. I am not sick off drugs. I feel stupid. I can't believe my parents made me do this. I, so because of that, I felt, I feel like looking back that whole time. You related out. I was picking out all the differences. I wasn't looking at the, sim the similarities. I'm looking at all these reasons why I don't belong here and why I'm not an addict. So I'm not getting any, I'm not learning. I'm not, I'm not gaining any knowledge on, you know, what's going on in my no, brain. No, because you shut off as soon as, as soon as you Step hear one, a speaker, as soon as the speaker says, you know, I'm John, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. And then they go, okay, well, I'm not an alcoholic. So I'm not going to listen to That's anything it. he says. Exactly. Exactly. I was not hearing it and I was not having it. So then, well, I get out of inpatient and they're talking about all of these, uh, you know, outpatient facilities where you can live in sober living and go to IOP, IOP, you know? So I end up going to IOP in South Orange County. That's what led me to Orange County. Um, a girl that I'd gotten very close with in inpatient, her and I went to the same one. Um, and so here's where it gets interesting. I was in outpatient for about a month. Um, me and the girl that I had went there with from inpatient, we we were hanging out all the time, of course. And then there was this uh, there was this kid I started talking to, this guy, right? Too many distractions around me. Um, well, we decide one day. I can't even tell you how it happened. We both skipped outpatient that day. This is what's weird. We were both working on step work. We were sitting outside at a table by the pool. You know, because the freaking sober livings out there are these like mansions. Um, we're sitting out there by the pool doing step work, and we somehow are talking enough in a certain way that we decide we want to get high. And she was an IV heroin user. I was there experiencing some 30s, never been dope sick, clearly wasn't taking them enough to be dope sick. Um, so there's that, right? So, long story short, I was introduced to not only heroin, but IV heroin use in outpatient rehab and also california ha has different heroin than that's Pennsylvania. why I, IV. that's exactly yeah. why i used it iv so i actually i i was like i was like i'm not doing this i didn't want to use the needle i was like i just want to snort it so they're like i don't want to get too in detail but they're like giving me this basically water this liquid substance 
that they have on a spoon. And I'm, I'm literally trying to snort this, which snorting any type of water, it doesn't go well, right? It's not supposed to go up your nose. It doesn't feel right. So, so you know, they handed the spoon. Yeah. So I got, I got frustrated. I also didn't want to waste the product. So I said, you know what? Screw it. Go ahead. You know? Um, so that was my first time using heroin and using it that way. So that's a lot all at once. Right. And it was, it was good. It was great. It felt really great. Um, and so that was, uh, that started. How old is Abby? How old is Abby this time? Ooh, question. 20, 2012? 23, 23. Okay. This was, well, my daughter, so I had my daughter in 2015. Oh, that's right. So it was after that. One. So th- this was, well, I went to, I, the first time I ever went to rehab was 2016. So, okay. yeah, I, yeah, it was, it was. So I had to have been like, tw- I want to say 22. I, I was 22 because I, I was um, sober when I turned 23. So I was 22 at this time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that, uh, but here's, you know, the thing is after that, I got sober again. Like I didn't, I didn't go into this whole big relapse, right? I you did didn't go that, on a run. Didn't go on a run. Um, did that, got caught, you know, so me and that girl had to be separated. They literally sent her to another treatment center and she, she ended up in like Napa Valley. She ended up somewhere totally different, a whole separate city. And, um, you know, so did the kid, we all got removed from each other, but here's the thing. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was obsessing. So for however long I stayed sober for that amount of time, the next relapse would have been with that, right? Because it was cheaper. I knew how good it felt. So yeah, I don't know. Fast forward at some point I relapsed again. Um again in California. In California. Because you were in sober living? Lot, yeah. California was a lot of um was a lot of on and off sober and, and relapsing. So I well, ended up I was You know what's tough about LA that people don't know about? Um, about the sobriety and the recovery is there's also a ton of body brokerage. It's terrible. It's um, I you know, body so for anybody doesn't know, body brokers are people that they take people like Abby and I. They're like, hey, you're struggling, you're an addict. We're gonna get you into treatment, but first you got to get high so you can fail and a drug we'll test. Pay you. We'll and pay we'll you pay you twenty five hundred dollars when you get out, Literally. and then no one ever gets. No we, one ever we gets will paid. We'll provide you the substances. We will give yeah. you the money if you go to the center because they make so much off of. They the make so much. Yep. Yeah, like so I know a guy that was home, that was living for like years in rehab just by getting out, just going body going down a skid row, and then got high, go mm-hmm. to another treatment, and then piss dirty, and then boom, he's in again. All. Yeah, they will. They'll just go drive down skid row and pick them up. Yeah. I mean, and all they, they're living in tents. They're gonna take the money. They're gonna go sleep in a nice bed for a couple of nights and get some money. And yep. Yeah, it's it's really sad, and that is huge. California and Florida, I always warn people, it's scary. Yeah. I was, I've never been a victim of it, but I've seen it so much. And then I even, once I started working in the treatment world, I was more so, so I was that I ran a detox center. So I ended up getting my RAG T1 certification, which is just Register Alcohol and Drug Technician Level 1. Um, just some classes and some courses you do online, and it certifies you so that you're able to actually, you know, um, monitor patients who are withdrawing and things like that. And it's, you know, easier to get better paying jobs and treatment, things like that. So I ran a detox center in Orange County. It was called the House of the Rising Sun. They called it THOR as the acronym. Um, and my best friend, Charlie, who 
God rest his soul, passed away in 2020, actually not even to addiction on a motorcycle. He wrecked. Um, him and I were like this team. So we were running a sober living together, right? So we were living for free in this, again, mansion in San Juan Capistrano. Um, we're running it. So we're getting free rent. And then we're working in their in their detox center, which was just about 10 minutes down the road in San Clemente, which is kind of close to San Diego. It's like the, yeah. the, the most south that Orange County gets. Um so I'm running the detox. Well, he did all the insurance. So he he got the he brought, he would bring the clients and he did all the marketing. But he wasn't a, a body broker. But because I was so close with him and because of what he did, he knew so much about the body broking world. And that's kind of where I learned about all of that and what they do. And he knew a lot about that. And he would always kind of um, differentiate for me like what a marketing director does and what a body broker does, right? And, and of course, the intent, the morals is the number one difference. But also like what to look for and. Yeah, I mean, you oh know, just God. somebody like a marketing, like somebody that's getting you in, they're not getting paid a big bonus every exactly. time they get. The guy I called, Justin, I call, you know, I still remember this conversation to this day because <clears throat> I called at 8 p.m. on a Saturday to find a rehab at 31 years old for the first time. And this dude answered at 5 p.m. on a Saturday and talked okay. to me for two hours like nobody else had ever talked to me, you, you know, and I was on a plane four days later and he was just doing his job. He didn't get a bonus. That was his job was to answer Exactly. That was Charlie. Yep. I, you know, thing. and you know, that's what's so crazy. So, you know, and then to fast forward. So th obviously I was sober for a while out there. Here was my biggest struggle, right? You weren't I, working a program. I didn't hear anything no, about a program. You were just not at all. working in no. detox. You're All you're doing is seeing people come in sick as hell. Well, so here's the thing, too, is so I'm living in a sober living room. We're working in a detox. So obviously there's a little bit of accountability there. However, the, pro, the, the people I was working for, the House of the Rising Sun, they were the faith-based program that I discussed earlier. So it it wasn't. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, hop in the van, we're going to a meeting. It was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, hop in the in the van, we're going to like praise, right? So it was like, it was, in a way it was cool because that's what opened the doors for me to those types of churches. And I grew up in a very traditional Christian Catholic kneel sit stand. And so it was cool to see all the worship and it was helpful for me. It built my a really strong relationship with God for me, which down the road was super helpful when I did end up working the steps. But as you know, as somebody who's like a, a hardcore addict, alcoholic, it's not enough, right? Like just having faith, it's not enough. You need a program. And so, yeah, no, there was no program. I wasn't working any steps. I didn't have a sponsor, but I was sober and I was winging it. Now things started to get really good. I'm making good money. I'm not, I don't have to pay rent. I buy a car out there. Um, so my life is looking really great. Well, as grateful as I was and as happy as I was, there was this other side of me that was super upset and depressed because I'm like, well, why? I would always ask God, like, why? Why? You know, my daughter's all the way in Pittsburgh. And I had felt this, like, I almost wanted to stay in California. Like, I didn't want to come home, but I had a child that I wanted to raise and be there for. And I couldn't bring her out to California for obvious reasons and uh, that wouldn't have been good. Um, so I just didn't get it. I couldn't understand what my path was, why were things happening this way? And so there was always that like doubt in my mind, like, well, what's the point? My, my end game was to, to get back home and be there for my child and be a sober, good mother. And I, I, I couldn't do that across the country. And so I was coming home for holidays, birthdays, I was still seeing her. I was FaceTiming her all the time and things like that. But I always had that doubt in my mind. So finally, fast forward, finally, um, 
I decided it was time to move home. I thought that I had enough, like, sobriety under my belt. I was successful. I was doing the What year is it? I was, I wanted to say it, um, and I couldn't, I'm, I'm trying to think. So, put it this way, the last time, it couldn't even have been. Well, I mean, you had to have spent a year there, at least. Well, I, I did, I did, but... I went to rehab here in Pittsburgh in 2017. That's the thing. So gotcha. I don't know if it was that. It was the same year. So I guess it was. I think I went to. I think I I, I, I think I came home in 2017. My way then, to look. I, I always look at photos for time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like on Facebook. Because my dad. See, for me, as I move so much, I'm like, where was I living it's at so the time? so hard for me. <clears throat> yeah, chronologically yeah. and dates. I'm, I'm so bad at this. Yeah. And also, I. I. In my mind, things feel like years and years and years. But then when I actually look at dates on paper, I'm like, oh, well, that couldn't have been. So, yeah, I, I was most definitely in California for at least a year. But it had to have been – I'm pretty sure it was 2017. I okay, well, let's like, say you get you get home. You get home to Pittsburgh. How fast do you relapse and start getting high Almost again? immediately because I'll tell you this. So so my dad I, – I had bought a car in California. And I didn't. my dad flew out to LAX to drive across the country with me, right? So – it was amazing. You know, we did the Grand Canyon. We did Sonoma. We did, um, we stood on the corner of Winslow, Arizona and listened to Take It Easy by the Beatles. I mean, some amazing memories. And I was sober for that stuff. Um, but I got home. Oh, my God. Not even a month. Not even a month I was using again. And it was the same, like I said earlier. It was just, I came home, moved in with my parents. And by the way, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of stories in between this that I that I didn't touch on. I, I got a boyfriend out in California. We were, like, in love. My parents moved him to Pittsburgh uh, with me. We were, oh, yeah, there's there's a lot that I didn't mention. And these are all just little details, and it basically just falls into it. it it's like the normal stuff, right? It's just like yeah. I'm looking for, I'm looking for all filling these voids again, right, with men whether it be, you know, love, sex, whatever. I'm just filling that void that, I, that, you know, alcohol and drugs were filling, but I don't have a program, right? So something needs to fill that void, and it, and it wasn't anything healthy. So there, there was all of that. Um, him and I ended up relapsing. Uh, I go back to California. Um, together? Together, right, exactly. But now when my dad and I drove across the country, this is the final time. This is this is when I moved back to Pittsburgh for good, and I've been here ever since. So all those details with my ex and all of those things, those were all before this. I just wanted mm. to kind of, like, throw that in there. So there were multiple times that I went to Cali and came home, went to Cali, came home. I did that twice, that little. So this time I come home, no boyfriend, no nothing, Um and yeah, it took about a month and I, again, moved back in with my parents, which you would think at this time I would learn. But I also didn't really have the finances to get my own place yet. Um, so yeah, I'm living with my parents. I relapse. Now, I promised myself in this relapse that I would not touch heroin, right? I, I swore up and down I wasn't going to touch it. So... I'm back on the thirties, which was an expensive habit. I think I was, I was serving at PF Chang's at the time and I couldn't afford it with that type of job. So now here's where, here's where things get crazy, crazier. Um, I started stealing my parents' checkbooks and I was writing out checks to myself, forging their handwriting. And I did this for a long time. Um, long enough that the amount of money I ended up stealing, which I later found out, um, 
was sickening, right? It was sickening. About the amount of money that you blow or waste or use. It's sickening. At the sickening. same time, I did exactly what I had to do in that moment to survive, you and I won't that's take it back. It. That's, that's how way. I live with it today, because that's all you can do is find ways to do, live right. with our past. Yeah, like being, so I um, live with it by, by saying to myself, well, if I didn't do it in that moment, I thought survival. I was going to die. Yeah, you're in survival mode. It's what yeah. you have to do. That's a great way to put it. I've actually never looked at it that way. And I'm a very optimistic, like, glass half full gal, so I like I like that a lot. So, yeah, I did this for a long time. Um, so until the day – and, you know, there was always that fear. Like, every time my phone would ring and it was my dad, my heart would sink because I always – I knew it was going to happen, right? And And here's where – the whole like addiction is or isn't a disease. Here's the thing. The entire time, and everybody relates to this that's that's an addict, I never fucking wanted to do this. From every moment I did it, from every check I wrote, I never wanted to do it. I didn't want to be using. I didn't want to be getting high. It just got to the point where I was simply using to not be sick. That was it. Like it wasn't fun anymore. There was I you know, what you I feel like you feel right now, right? You yes, are getting high exactly. enough to feel to like get out you of bed. do right now, just to, to feel even again. Exactly. Like, so like I hated oh my this. God. And, yeah. And so my dad, every time my dad would call me, my heart would sink. And I'm like, is this the, is this the phone call? I knew it was going to happen. And any normal person, they're like, well, then why the hell didn't you stop? And that's where the addiction comes into play and the insanity that's involved in it. And so finally that day came, my dad calls me. And I answer, and um, here he was pumping gas, and his car declined, um, which doesn't happen to my parents. And so he obviously knew something was up. So he immediately goes to the bank. Well, here, by the time he had called me, he had every printed-out copy of every check I had ever forged. He had the total amount and all that. So he gives me an ultimatum. Go to rehab, or I'm pressing charges. So, of course, I choose rehab. I don't want to go to jail, right? So... This would be the first time I ever went to rehab here in Pittsburgh. Now, I went to treatment in Washington County, but, you know, not even a half hour away from Pittsburgh. So the first time ever in Pennsylvania, I should say, I had ever gone to treatment here. So I go to Greenbrier Treatment Center um, because of the ultimatum. And so this was the first time in treatment where nobody was calling me. I had nobody to call. Nobody was writing me letters. Nobody was sending me toiletries. Every other time I'd been to treatment, in fact, in the very beginning, the first time I went to treatment, this is who my mother is. This is, I, I joke about this to, to this day. What The very first time I ever went to treatment, I was getting cards from family members I didn't even fucking know. Cousins I didn't even know I had. And, and I was mad. It pissed me off, right? This isn't something that you go and you tell everybody about, but that's who my fucking mother is. So everybody knew. Everybody knew where I was. I had my, my roommates would make fun of me. They'd laugh. We'd all laugh. Cause I would have cards like all along the window seals. I mean, just so much shit. So anyway, for me, by this point, it was a huge change. Like I had nobody, nobody. No I had no money. Now. Yeah. Oh yeah. God forbid. Right. I don't have a carton of cigarettes this time before I was loaning people money here's a fucking here's some Reese cups here's a pack of smokes i was that person too because i'm like my parents were like well make sure you can get cigarettes we'll make sure you can get basic yep. and they took care of it because that was my first time so i i get exactly the first time exactly. thing the with par- difference treatment's real different from the first and the last this shit's so fucking humbling so so i uh you know i go through 28 days so i have two days left of inpatient right and also the other the, the biggest difference i noticed internally was 
Um, no, I was still very, very sick, but I wasn't, I wasn't having fun in treatment. I wasn't laughing and making friends the way I did in the past. And I'm a very like bubbly, like I'll be, I'm friends with everybody. I'm fucking sitting on the couch and detox, you know, making friends. And this time I'm literally the girl like in, in the corner, not talking to anybody, like genuinely torn to the fucking ground for the first time. And more than anything else, fearful, fucking terrified for everything, for my life, my freedom, um, my daughter, everything terrified, um, which was new for me. I was never that scared before. And so I go through 28 days. I have two days left and I'm, and I'm, I'm starting to feel better. Right. I had everything set up to, to move into a sober living here in, in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, for when I'm done. Cause I literally had nowhere else to go. I didn't have a choice to go back to my parents this time. I had nowhere to go, um, which was good for me. So I had everything set up. I'm starting to feel better. I'm ready to get back out there, start a new life. Like I said, I had two days left. They do mail call. My name is called and I'm like, there, is there another Abby? There's no way. There's no way that I'm getting mail. Nobody's sending me shit. And they're like, no, Abby Fickley, this is for you. I'm like, all right. Uh, um, obviously saved it. So three pages typed. Um, I had no idea what to expect. Obviously when I got this, I, to be honest, I didn't expect this. I thought it was at least going to be like, kind of like, I hope you're doing well. Not at all. Not in the slightest. Here's a little cash. Um, right. Right. Um, so it's basically this entire letter is basically a boundary. Um, it's basically like, we have given so much of our time, energy, love, care, concern, everything to you. And because of that, you know, my brother and sister lacked some, like they, they were, it, it was affecting them. Right. And at this time, my, my sister had just gotten married. They were trying to get pregnant. Like there were big things happening in my sister's life. And Sadly, a lot of it was put on the back burner because here's me like just running mocks and die. Everybody being afraid every night that I was going to die. I remember, I remember when I made amends to my sister, once I finally did the steps, um, I remember her telling me that the hardest part for her was having to mourn the death of me, even though I was still alive. Like she was just so tired of, of worrying that she just finally had to mourn my death and prepare herself for it, which was heartbreaking and that's something that you don't forget but anyways so this is all just about they took me off their health insurance they thought i was doing good so many times every time it was a lie um so like for instance here judging by the dates of the checks that you cashed you must have relapsed not long after returning home from california so while all of this commitment and hard work that went into helping you reestablish your life was underway you began at some point using again this, I, oh, I'm going to try not to cry. I was your, this is my dad. I was your biggest advocate. While other members of the family were skeptical, I went to bat for you over and over again. I trusted you and I put my faith in you and you broke my heart because it was all an illusion. You had fallen back into the same situation once again, lying, cheating, and stealing from those who love you more than you will ever know. It hits just the same. It's crazy. That's why I kept this. Um, and then it says, so now, Abby, I'm sorry to say that you were on your own completely. We will no longer enable you, help you, or assist you in any way. We can't. We are broken. The disruption, chaos, and despair that you have brought to this family can no longer be tolerated. We no longer have the strength to help you. I no longer have the heart to help you. 
I wish it hadn't had to come to this, but here we are. This is our new reality. We no longer believe in, this is horrible. We no longer believe in you or your ability to overcome this addiction. I hope we are wrong, but you have only shown us time after time that you cannot or are not willing to change your behavior. So this entire thing is, is things like that paragraph. Like it's not only a boundary, it's fucked up. And I'm not mad at my father. I don't resent my father. Like when I tell this story a lot, I always get people that are like, I would, I would never speak to my father again. And obviously those are like people that don't get it. Right. Like I truly don't resent my father and what ended up coming of this letter, what my life, he saved my life. So whether he was a bit harsh or not, I needed it. I'm one it's of what people. he didn't do yet. Exactly. When, when you get to that point, you, you have Nothing to left. pull out all the stops. Like, well, we can't give her love because that didn't work. We can't give her money because that didn't work. We can't give her treatment. We can't give her this because none Literally. of that is working. Literally. I have to just it almost sounds like he went to an Al-Anon meeting. I think and, he did. and I they were like, this is what you need to do, bro. I agree with you. Write a letter and send it to her, but wait until she's almost done treatment so she doesn't freak out and leave. Or leave. Yes, exactly. And that's my theory. Never found out for sure, though. That's that's definitely my theory. No, <laughs> that's for sure. My... And I know I know they've gone to Al-Anon, but I don't know if this um, if Al-Anon is what initiated this, but I'm assuming it did. Alanon so is amazing, is even when you're in sobriety and when you get years under your belt. Alanon, especially when you recover out loud, like we do, Alanon is so so crucial that you know because we don't even realize it, but we're being disappointed by addicts every day. Every day, helping just them, like sponsoring them, having platforms, podcasts. Absolutely, Alanon is so important. I tell people that all the time. Whether it's uh, you know, they're like, oh, I'm the addict. Girlfriend. I'm like, no, but you don't get it. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. Some addicts don't realize it, that it's helpful for us, especially in sobriety. I agree with you. Yeah. So now the, the crucial part of this letter would change my entire life because, again, I'm one of those addicts. Like, this is the type of shit I need. I, if somebody can't hold my hand and say it's going to be okay. That's not going to get me sober. I need somebody to scare the living fucking shit out of me. I need, I need to be absolutely terrified to the point where I'm willing to put in the work get a sponsor, work a program, do service work, have a home group. Like I have to be scared shitless. And that's something that I learned the hard way, obviously. Like it goes so much deeper than, oh, I have to learn through experience. You could tell me, you know, don't touch a hot stove. I'm going to touch it anyway. It is like that times a thousand. You know what I mean? So here's where this letter got intense and where I really got scared. Every other piece of it was heartbreaking. Now, this is where I, I stopped crying while reading this. When I read this part, I, the tears stopped because I went from being sad to being fucking scared. And so he writes here, I want to let you know, and, and this is after he gave me that ultimatum. Um, I want to let you know that with a great deal of sadness, I filed charges against you from stealing from us. You forged over 30 checks in over six weeks or so. And then the amount is written there. Um, all this while we paid your rent, your car payment, your phone bill, which again, this is another reason why I wasn't getting sober. Um, your phone bill, you gave, we gave you money for daily expenses until you got on your feet. I can't, I have to do things on my own. I learned that the hard way to appreciate them and to be grateful for them. I can't have shit handed to me. Even today, like I, I, I like cannot accept money. Like I, it, it's hard. It's, it gets easier now. And it's something like I'm working on and I am financially independent, but 
I'm like afraid to like accept favors from people. I'm so afraid because I know how I am. Um, we bought you furniture for your house. We gave you our time, money, energy. You betrayed us. This wound is a deep one, and I don't know if or when it will ever be healed. And it's not about the money. It's about you and your lack of morality to steal from those helping you. I am sick about it. Um, yeah, and then it just goes on. I can't believe you would betray us like this. We have also taken you off of our health insurance plan. You will be um, on your own to establish some sort of health care. Your car is repaired because, of course, I towed, I wrecked it right before I went into rehab with an outstanding balance. Um, I'm not paying it, so you can either sell it. If you can sell your car, I would do that because if not, your car is going to get repossessed. So I'm finding all this out fucking two days before I graduate rehab, right? Like, I'm feeling good. I'm ready to get out there. And then I find out that I'm facing 32 counts of forgery, identity theft, and theft by unlawful taking, which was a minimum of seven years in prison. And that my car is most likely getting repossessed. So this, obviously, that hit me like a train of fucking bricks. Um, but I'm convinced that the reason I'm not only alive, but sober and thriving today is because my father went through with those charges. I believe with everything in me that if he would not have pressed those charges, he would have got got away with it. Where's the lesson? Yeah. What was your lesson? 30 days in rehab? Exactly. My sleep, literally. Yeah. It's like a vacation. They feed me. Tell me that. Like, exactly. So, you know, I'm convinced. Um, People disagree. People think I should, you know, whatever. Everybody has their opinion. But um, I, I had to put in the work. I had to be held accountable for one. So can I ask you something? Yeah. At 28 days, though, before you open that letter and know you're getting out in a couple of days, did you have any reservations? As in a reservation like, you know, yeah. to get I, I'm going to get. Yeah. Um, kind of. My, it wasn't. So it's not a much. bad thing if you did. It's just no. I'm gonna no. I'm, I'm if anything, it's good. It. I'm gonna explain it. Actually, I I shouldn't say kind of because the, the the answer is yes. I had reservations, and it was to use substances that wouldn't pop on a drug test. Put it that way. Like I was gonna abuse things that I was that I the drugs that I learned about when I first went to treatment. If that makes any sense at all, things yep. that I knew made me feel good, but weren't going to pop on a drug test. Things like that. So I, I did. I had a full plan of how I was going to like live this new, this new life because I truly did want to get better. I wanted to change, but I wanted to take the easy way. You know, I wanted to still, yes, I had reservations. I did. Um, you know, even today, even just then, like justifying certain things like I did. So that th- this obviously changed that big time um, because, again, I was scared. And I always tell people this, too, like that want to get clean. Fear was like my number one motivator. Like that's what I needed to want to turn my life around and to actually do this. It it was fear. Like I could be, I could be sad. I could be depressed. And of course this is probably different for everybody, but just, I don't know, looking back and, and learning and through all my experiences for me, I had to be fucking scared. I mean, well, I, I know why that enough. I, I, I have a theory of why for you. Yeah. It's because you weren't afraid before. So yeah. you knew what was going to happen. Yeah. You knew that you were going to be safe. You knew that yes. you would have backup plans. You knew exactly. that you had, you were financially safe Somewhere as well. I could sleep. Fear exactly. is fear is exactly. not knowing what's going to happen. Yep. And I was on and, my own for the first yeah. time in 22 years. I was fucking no, no, because at this point I was 24, 24, 
Yeah, I was 24 at this point. You can be 90 and still have fear. Yeah. It's the oh, unknown. Absolutely. Whenever you don't know what's on the other side of that door, you know, I always equate it to like everyone's seen Home Alone, right? Yeah. You we're always afraid of our own imaginations because they give home alone the first one. He's afraid to go into the basement because the furnace is a monster. Right. Every time he thinks of the furnace, it's a giant monster. It right. wasn't until he had to go down there anyway, because nobody else Realized. was home. Yeah. And then he saw it and he was like, Oh, and then it started <laughs> right. turned into a monster. And he was like, shut up. And it went away because he was shutting up his own imagination. That was telling him that's what it does. Yeah. It's very true. Yeah, it was de- it was most definitely the first time in my life I was ever like, oh my god, I'm truly. It's up to me. Like if I'm gonna have a warm place to sleep at night, it's up to me. If I'm gonna have food to eat, it's up to you. You don't know if you're gonna walk out and get put in cuffs. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I didn't. I truly didn't. And I remember right after reading this letter, the first thing I did was walk up to every tech. What? How much time could I serve because of this? What? What is? Do you think I'm gonna go to jail? Am I gonna go to prison? Am I gonna go to prison? Like that's all I cared about was. Am I going to go to prison? And then the second thing was, oh, my God, my car. Like, not worried about, like, still so sick. I'm not worried about all the people I've hurt. Am I ever going to get my father back, my family back? No, it's the fucking car. My daughter. Yeah, my daughter. It's the material shit. It was the items. It was, but, you know, then your freedom. I mean, there nothing compares to not knowing if you're going to have your fucking freedom or not. There is, and I, and that's another thing that I talk about a lot because, that experience alone did so much for me um, when it came to my relationship with God, my ability to let things go and give them to God, my ability to trust in God. Because so I get out of treatment, I go to this sober living and, you know, this court case, obviously it was going to take a while. It ended up taking over a year to totally work itself out. Um, and plus when, when I, you're in treatment anyway, they can't really, you know do much they usually can, but so, in sober living they could because this oh was, sober living you're out of it wasn't yeah. a halfway it was a three-quarter yeah so i wasn't okay. under like i had my phone i could you know when you're in it, take it in detox and inpatient they won't touch you but if you're in sober no, living they will exactly they okay. could cuff you the moment yeah. you you get out of rehab yep. they, i've had it happen to a couple of my friends actually but um yeah so i get out and i go to the sober living and you know i have to pay rent every month it was a very strict sober living and I will be, I'm forever grateful. It was like, if they find out through the grapevine that like, you're not calling your sponsor every day, they give you one warning. If you don't start calling your sponsor every day, you're kicked out. Like the littlest thing. So of course you had to get a job within, I think it was like four or six weeks. You had to have a job, at least a part-time job. Um, you had to pay your rent. You had to do your chores the whole nine, you know, I had a curfew, all that. So, um, I was in this phase where I was waking up and I was just sick, physically sick every day, just not knowing what was going to happen to me, the fear of the unknown. And so I'm like puking every morning. I Anxiety throw up. Yeah, the anxiety. But that's it it was all that fear of the unknown. That's always what it boiled down to at this time. And 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 this went on for weeks. And I was going to starting to go to meetings and I had gotten a sponsor. And then finally, and this was with the help of my sponsor, I just I'll never forget the day I woke up and I. I was on the bathroom floor on my knees and I just remember I bawling my eyes out. I'm like, dude, you know what? No matter what happens to me, no matter how long I go away for, if I go away, what happens? I cannot fucking live like this anymore. I cannot wake up this sick every day. I cannot have this. It's, it was just too heavy. It just got to the point where I was so sick of feeling that way that I didn't even care what was going to happen to me anymore. I had to figure out a way to live my life not knowing what was going to happen to me and be okay with that somehow, some way. And it was in that moment where I looked up and I was like, God or whatever is up there, 
I don't know if you hear me. I don't know if you're real. I kind of feel silly right now, but can you fucking take this? Like, I'm willing to put in work. I'm willing to work hard. I'm willing to do steps. I'm willing to do what these people in the rooms who have these wonderful lives, these people that I look up to, I'm willing to do every fucking thing they tell me to do. If you will, please just take this weight, this weight that I'm carrying, this unknown fear, what is going to happen to me? Just hold it for me and I'll do the rest. And that, that was literally what I said. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of like a huge turnaround for me. It may, uh, I haven't talked about this stuff in a while. Um, so yeah, I, I worked the steps with my sponsor. We didn't fucking waste any time. I remember sitting on my four step for a while and I called my sponsor one day and I was like, I'm feeling like really discontent and impatient. Everybody's bothering me. She's like, how's that four step coming? And I remember being like, Ugh. And, and that was it. And that was it. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, how is this shit that real? Cause I finished my four step, you know, sat with her for a couple hours talked about it, bawled my eyes out. Cause I realized I was the fucking common denominator to every fucking everything <laughs> yeah. on my four step. It was like, but you did it right then, Abby. <laughs> yeah, you did exactly. it right then because there's so many times I've helped people where I've talked to people and they're like, well, my list was against like my parents or this person or that. I'm like, your list you should be three quarters against yourself. And then guess what? Yes. When you get to eight, nine, you reference that list and then you it. apologize oh, for that list. Yup. Yup. So yeah, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, those little moments really just made me like, holy shit, these steps are real. This shit is real. Like I used to tell people like you're missing, like my sober friends are my normie friends, which, you know, what is normal, but my friends who could just drink normally, I'd be like, dude, you could fucking get something out of these steps. Like anybody could. They were that helpful for me. I wanted to like go tell everybody. I have helped somebody that was have as you? a normie yeah, in my meeting it. center. She That's she was it. 23 and here for mental health. Like she was literally here because anxiety and depression and trauma in her past, but never was a drug addict, never was an alcoholic. Um, and I always talked about the steps in our mental health meetings. And she's like, what what are they about? Yeah, like, can any of that? I'm like, listen, what makes your life unmanageable? And she was like, what? I said, what makes your life unmanageable the most? You don't have to tell me. Yeah. But all it is, is whatever that is that makes your life unmanageable, replace the word alcohol with that thing that makes yeah. your life unmanageable and then go through it that way. And I let her borrow my Russell Brand book. This way it was more fun for her because like yeah. his book is like, are you fucked? And all this stuff. It's funny. You know what I mean? So I let her use that. And it was extremely helpful for her. She ended up changing her life. Her and her fiance moved oh, to like amazing. states away from where the trauma was. And like, she's very happy now. Oh, that's so, so cool. I know I've for a fact that, that it was beneficial for somebody. That's really cool. Cause I've never had the pleasure of taking anybody through this. Step it's about what you have to do is what I've learned is Ask them what makes their life unmanageable because if yeah, you ask I any like if you if you ask any normie what the first step is, they're gonna say admitting it's the first step. Right. And it's not. And it, it kind of is. But really it's that semicolon, it's my life was unmanageable. Right, you know? right. Well, and it's admitting that, you know, whatever it is that's unmanageable is out of your control, right? Powerless. You don't have power over Those it. Those are so. the big two words, in my opinion, the first step that everyone forgets. They're like no, it's just you admitting it. It's like, no, I'm powerless and it's I'm unmanageable. Yes. That's what makes it yep. important. That's And the people that do steps right, they may, they write a list of all the ways their life is unmanageable. Oh, yeah. And if uh, you're not doing oh, that yeah. list and you're just like breezing over step one, get ready to do that shit again. Absolutely. There's so much detail. And even yeah. like, I, you know, I've worked the steps a, 
I worked the setups twice, like with myself. Like thoroughly, yeah. Thoroughly. And then, you know, that's the other cool thing about sponsoring people and taking other people through the steps. People you learn more. Each time. Each yes. time. Yes. New <laughs> things, even about myself sometimes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm helping somebody else. And that's the cool thing about it. You know, you never stop learning. You never stop. I don't ever want to stop learning. That's like one. One of my biggest prayers is, you know, I always want to change. I want to continue evolving, continue growing. I want my opinions to change. And, you know, I mean, it's. It's okay to change. People get so butthurt about change. Like the most beautiful things come from change. Like I I hate to be so cliche, but butterflies. You know what I mean? Like true. And life won't like get any better for you by chance. It is only by change. Like literally, it's not just going to happen. Yep. If you're unhappy right now, then change shit. Radical change. You can't sit around and wait for something. Nobody else is going to do like, it. No, the only reason both of us are sitting right here sober today is because we wanted it. Yeah. The difference was that day on that bathroom floor, you wanted to be sober and you didn't need to be sober I, anymore. No, I, I really did. And you know what? And that's, I tell people that too, is like, you know, it's okay if it takes an out, an outer some, something else to get you into treatment, right? Like for me, it was that ultimatum that my dad gave me, which... Yeah. <laughs> joke was on me but it, it it's okay if something else gets you in there but it's it's you finding something while you're there that that keeps you there so you know like for me yeah my dad got me in there but along the way I started to like the way I felt oh my god I I heard a good song I felt goosebumps I haven't felt goosebumps from a song in fucking years I just laughed so hard my stomach hurt when's that the was, last that's... time I laughed so hard my stomach hurt all those little tiny things that are what makes life so beautiful that I had forgotten about because I was so numb and so dead inside. That's what made me want to keep going, you know? So yes, somebody else pushed me to go there, but thank God I found something. And that's another thing I talk about a lot with moms because for so many years, especially in California, I made my daughter my reason, right? It's really easy to do that. I I, got to do this for my daughter. I'm getting sober for my daughter. And anytime I hear somebody say that, I stop them. And it's not necessarily like, no, don't do that. But I make them. Think I say about why. It. I yes, ask why. I, exactly. You make I make them think about it. Because what happened with me when I set myself up that way, when I couldn't get sober, then what did I do? Made myself feel like a bad mom. Oh, I'm a piece of shit. If I can't even do it for my daughter, well, then I'm I'm useless. I'm hopeless. There's no point. And that's where I started to lead myself. When really it was just no. I could love her more than anything in the world. I know for a fact I would jump in front of a bus if it meant to save her life. I know that. Does that mean I could get sober for her? Never. Not in a million years. It doesn't mean I don't love my daughter, but I have to want it for me. And it took me years and years to learn that. And that's why I ask them that question, because I don't want them ever to fall into that mom guilt or that shame. Like, oh, I'm a bad mom. I must not care about my kid. You know, it just it goes so much deeper. I learned it in sober living. Um, I was I was killing it because I wanted to be there. And my really good friend, she was struggling and she had just got caught, you know, and failed a drug test. So, you know, it's back to detox. You go and we're sitting outside the sober living and we're smoking cigarettes, of course. And she just (laughs) crying and she's just like, I don't understand. I can't get this. Like, I I need to do this and I can't. I kept saying the word need. And, you know, and I'm like 35 Ah. days sober for the first time in my life at this point, like, you know. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, wait, why? And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, why do you need to be sober? And she's like, well, my my parents and my brother and my sister, everyone's disappointed in this, that, and the third. I'm like, oh, see, you keep saying you don't know why it's working for me. It's working and it's not working for you is 
none of my family told me to be here. I want to be here. I want to do this. I want things to be different. And in order for them to be different, I have to stop doing everything I was doing before. Yeah. And the other thing you remind me of is the laughter. That the fucked up thing, Abby, is I was a stand-up comic in addition. Really? Oh, and I and I forgot how to laugh. I didn't know that. But I would, you know, I would still laugh. I'm not a sociopath. Like I would be in a club and I'm a smart enough guy that you said a joke and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, right. and I'm gonna laugh with my right. head. I'm gonna say uh-huh. JD laugh at that. That's funny. Mm-hmm. But I didn't laugh with my stomach until my stomach hurt until I was like two, three weeks in rehab. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's and, uh, one of those things. And I was like, oh, my God, my stomach hurts from laughing. Yeah. And that's it, when it all hit me. Like, you dumb fuck. You weren't feeling anything for 20 years. <laughs> I know. Like, I'll never forget. So this is this is how real this shit is when it comes to all those little emotions and those feelings. I can literally tell you what songs came out. When I was that very first time I ever went to rehab in Palm Springs, California, I can literally tell you what songs were just coming out on the radio because when we would ride in in the van to go to like the gym or to a meeting, those songs would come on and I would literally, this is crazy, but I would literally, I would get teary eyed. I'd get emotional and I would be like, I would have to fight back the tears. And these weren't even like sad songs. It was just, there was so much emotion that was being held back for so long. You know that song, um, this is so funny, uh, Closer with Halsey yeah. and um, the Chainsmokers, which yep. was huge, obviously. Oh, my God, that song came out around that time, um, I believe, or at least it was on the radio all the time yeah. at that time. And I would fucking cry. It just Halsey, it was just her voice. It was just so beautiful. She has it's that so role, like, she voice does. of, oh, like, she's so seen good. it. She's been there. She, you uh-huh. can hear the pain in her voice. And I, and I totally get the song for me. And I, and I get this, you're going to get this Southern California reference to this too, because like, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to meetings in West Hollywood. You know what I mean? And I'll probably meet cool people. And I, I, you know, I did, I met a lot of amazing people and I kind of mirrored my place out of the West Hollywood recovery center that I loved going to so much. Um, that was also a famous singers home group. Um, Demi Lovato. And, But guess what, Abby? I got to rehab April 25th, 2018. She came out with a new song a week later called Sober. Sober. She relapsed. and Well, no, no, not relapsed. She almost died two days before I left. That's crazy. That's I was in their meeting. She was in sober living at that time in Pittsburgh. I was, I was in their meeting. And wow. on Tuesday night, they have the best meeting on Tuesday night because it's called See You Next Tuesday. And I just <laughs> oh, thought I love that. that. Yes. Um, and that was her home oh, that's group. So good. That's and so good. everybody was bawling because not only did she almost die that day, but somebody else from that home group did die that day on his oh relapse with a year. That's a lot. Mac Miller died two weeks later. Yeah, you know what I mean? Far, and that, that one, that far. one hit me. Exactly. So like, I, I get, went to his memorial. I went to at Blue Slide oh, Park. His, yeah. That I was, was in sober year. living. I was in sober living. I was living in sober living and me and uh, two of my roommates. The three of us went after birthday our birthday yesterday. Group. Everyone that knows when we're recording this now, but happy birthday yesterday, Mac up there, because yes, that was yes, his birthday happy yesterday. Happy belated birthday. Happy belated birthday, Mac. We miss you and your music. Yeah, we I went still to watch his Tiny Desk, Tiny Desk NPR all the time. Hell yeah. Like, Hell that's yeah. one of my favorite Tiny Desk ones that NPR did was with him, because it's so raw and, like, 
It's so so good. Um, yeah. But anyway, we can go and rants with music. But I, know I get we could. it. What did we you never... What did you call your vans? Everyone had different names for them in rehabs when I was out there. I heard Dopeine Limousine. I heard oh, yeah, yeah. Druggy Buggy. I heard yeah. like. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. Yeah, Druggy Buggy and Dopeine Limousine were the biggest ones. And then the yeah. third one we used was Adivan. The Adivan. <laughs> <laughs> See, I knew there was going to be a good one. Yeah, There's always a bunch of good yeah, ones yeah. that pop up. Buggy, um, dope fiend limousine. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to think. But it was it was mainly the Ativan. Um, it oh sounds, so well, you know, it sounds like to me the difference was that letter and the steps. It was. Well, uh, yeah, above anything else, it was a thousand percent the steps. But the letter is what led me to put in the work to actually put in do there. the steps. So, yeah. yes, it was. It was, yeah, the biggest, the most pivotal moment in, in my life in terms of wanting to do this thing for real was the letter. And it was, it was my father pressing those charges. And then what actually, you know, tools wise, when you, it, it was a thousand percent just working a program and, and it truly is so simple, you know, simple program for difficult people. It is so true because I overcomplicated it. And I mean, I'm sure you could relate to that or, you know, a lot of other people in the program. Um, because once I actually went ahead and did it and just simply did exactly what my sponsor told me to do, even if I didn't think that was what, because I got to the point where I was like, you know what, clearly nothing that I do is correct. So even when there were moments where I'm like, I don't think that sounds right. I just fucking did it anyways, because at that point I knew it was like, well, what do I know? Look where I've gotten myself. And so I mean, somebody could have told me to do something so fucking weird or embarrassing, and I would have done it. And I'm going to tell you, this is just a little funny, um, quick mini story for for anybody who, who has anxiety, because I get this a lot, you know, with my platform. People are, are too afraid to go to meetings. They They say their social anxiety stops them from going to meetings. And I always tell this because this was the most humbling fucking moment of my life in sobriety so i'm in pittsburgh right it's it's a you know the sober community here a lot of people know a lot of people right and uh i'm living in sober living and this was the first day i got out of inpatient it was a tuesday because this meeting ended up becoming my home group and one of the girls that lived there said hey do you want to come to a meeting tonight and i'm like yeah i had nothing else to do i couldn't leave i was on blackout meanwhile i'm 20 minutes away from where i grew up and i feel like i'm like literally stranded. Um, I had no, nobody would, would answer my phone calls. And, you know, so I truly felt like I was so far from everybody and I wasn't. So here I am on this blackout period, can't go anywhere, can't do anything. So of course, you know, I wanted to go to a meeting and she said, you know, well, there's a girl coming to pick a few of us up. You can ride with us. And I'm like, okay, great. Cause I'd have my car. Um, this girl pulls up to the sober living. There's three of us. We're getting in the car and she rolls down her window, the girl driving, she goes, shit she's like I don't have enough seats and the issue was her kid's car seat was in the back and she couldn't take it out so me being the smallest one they're like just sit in the car seat you know it's a three minute ride up the road whatever so I'm the new girl okay showing up to this meeting um we pull up you know everybody is outside smoking Smoking. everybody's watching us pull in they open all the doors when I tell you 30 fucking people smoking cigarettes. I don't know any of these motherfuckers yet are watching me open this car door and jump out of a fucking car seat, you know, not even 30 days sober looking fucking rough in every way you can imagine. So when somebody tells me they're too fucking scared to go into a meeting, please remember the moment or the story of me hopping out of a toddler's 
not even like a booster seat. This was like a car seat. Car seat. This was like the kind that you could still put like the baby carrier in. Oh my God. And you know what? They, we made that, that, that became an inside joke with my home group for, for a long time. You know, Abby's, you know, grand appearance to the meetings called you know, jump out of a car seat. So anyway, I don't know. You know, I've heard the theory that I've heard the theory that like we stopped maturing at a certain age and we are using, but I didn't think you'd have to really go that far, Abby, to get out of a fucking. Yeah, how about that analogy? Yeah, I was reborn in every way. The faith-based ones didn't work for me, but here I am. (laughs) So yeah, oh my God, when somebody's like, well, I'm scared. I'm like, I don't want to hear it. Try hopping out in a fucking car seat because you have no other choice. Yeah. So, and you know, I, anyway, I, well, um, you, know, you know what you say to those people is you say of what you say you're scared of what? And then their response nine out of 10 times is, I don't know. And then every time they say, of, yeah. yep. Every time they say, I don't know. It's like, well, that's very common because that's what fear is, is things yep. you don't know, but yep. you see that I'm happy, right? Well, yep. yeah. Well, I go to this meeting and it feel, gives me joy. Yes. Like my, my regular was um, I don't know how far like in the LA you went ever, um, but I went on the Not I was on the west I was on the west side like Venice like Santa Monica, okay. yeah, uh, and Marina del Rey because okay. um, Marina Center holds five six meetings a day including 11 p.m. and oh, no. I got I got permission from my you know to break curfew every single day to go to that meeting. Okay, got um, it. And it saved me so much because I finally. And you know this struggle too. So like, I finally um could be at a real meeting finally with people my age that weren't in rehab, because yes. when you go to yes. a seven you eight like p.m. meeting in Southern California, all the limousines pull up, <laughs> I was and say, then it's all druggy buggies in the parking yep, lot, and everybody your age are, are just as sober as you with thirty, you know. Yeah. But at this Probably late so night meeting was people in their mid to late twenties, early thirties, like I was. And- Jobs and who had jobs yes, and who were people already you and they were yes. they just wanted to end their day with that 11 o'clock meeting yes yeah. by candlelight we had strung oh, lights around candlelight. and it was so raw there would be crosstalk they'd be yelling at each other i fucking loved it yeah i um that. i didn't i haven't seen i haven't been to a candlelight meeting since i lived in california actually exactly. i forgot about them yeah <laughs> i do them i do them here out of like oh, just so pure awesome. Like, but then again, I read how it works here because I'm so used to that tradition. Yes. Like, I was so butthurt no, I mean, when I got to Hershey, and they're like, "No, we don't read how it works here." I'm like, "What? Huh. It's it's a tradition, isn't it?" They're like, yeah. and, then I, and then I'm like, "It's a Southern California." I'm like thinking of the preamble in my head, and I'm right. like, "Oh, it's a Southern California tradition," because I'm hearing the preamble. Because I used to, I used to speak it all. The, I was That's so excited. That's yeah. interesting. Oh. Yeah. But then I did find a meeting where I live now in the mountains that they do read how it works at every meeting. Yeah, because so we I, read it here too. Okay, um, it was definitely the that. I've been to the ones that I. Harrisburg, been. Hershey, Lancaster. Well, no, Lan- Lancaster didn't either. It was further down. I found a meeting an hour from my house when I got back that I would go to three times a week because I figure if I was driving two hours to get high, I should drive an hour to get sober. Yep. And I did that for like six months. Okay. Um, and then I, you know, you stop. And then yep. you 
and then you relapse eventually like I did because when you stop going to meetings and you stop connecting with people, mm-hmm. then you start talking yourself into shit and I relapse with alcohol because I'm not an alcoholic. I'm a pill addict. Exactly. Same I thing. even poured yeah. the first two out before I drank the rest of the six pack to prove to myself I could pour out a drink. It's yep. like, no, you fucking asshole. You should have poured them out at the end, not at the beginning. Anyone can pour the first two out. Pour those last two out, bitch. You know what I mean? Like yelling at myself. <laughs> yes, I was yes. doing the steps like, you know, like, Oh yeah. Yeah. It didn't change anything. Um, so nice meeting you and talking to you more. Oh my God. Yeah. We have so much in common. It is oh, we do. ridiculous. It's, it's crazy. It's so funny whenever I do this and you never think you're going to have anything. Well, actually that's not true. I always know I'm going to have something in common because like I specifically try to find ways, like you said earlier with the relating, right? They're relating in and relating yeah, out. Yeah, you, you choose. You want to look at the similarities or the differences because you're going to find them. Yep, and that's why I ask questions like, do you have any siblings? And no, are your yeah. parents together? Because I want the audience to go, oh, I'm the youngest. Oh, my parents are still together. I and like then like want that. to relate to you the rest of the way. Yeah, the, it, so. It, it, draws people in no for sure i mean yeah the moment- i relate it out you know when you relate out to meetings you're not even you're at the fucking lunch you're not hearing a word that's being that's said. that was the first that was the moment i walked into detox the very first time i went to rehab i instantly the first not even five minutes i was like i don't belong here yeah. and the, yeah I, from there it was every single thing it wasn't oh we have this in common which i could have found that if that's what i was looking for but i wasn't it, it was yeah i had already set the stage for and I don't that's here, yeah that's what changed yeah. me is like sitting in a meeting and hearing myself speak from the podium and not even realize I wasn't even paying attention. You know, like I wasn't, I wasn't because I, at the time I wasn't, it was yep. the first like week and a half. Right. And then like mm-hmm. I was sitting there at an 8 PM meeting at Marina and I hear, you know, he ended up being a really good friend and mentor, not a sponsor, but I consider like a mentor from the yeah. late night meetings, but he was speaking. He's got Nikolai and everything he said, I was like, Oh, that's like me. Oh shit. That's like me too. Oh, wait, he was on pills and he can talk about that in AA? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that blew my mind when he was talking about pills in AA. Yeah. I was like, I can talk about that here? Yes. I'm in the right spot? And it it, feel like you're not singled out uh, or alone. Yep. And as soon as you flip that switch to wanting it and not needing it, it's off to the races because we start chasing that. We start obsessing over sobriety. Like we obsess over drugs. Exactly. Yeah. We have the same tendency. Look at us now. (laughs) Take the drugs out. I know you take the drugs out. The problem's still there. The drugs were the solution. I always say that word for word. I always word for word say that. It's just so true. I mean, you take all the drugs away and there is, there's just one big giant issue that still needs a whole lot of work. And that, you know, I mean, just because you take away the drugs doesn't mean people have have changed. There's a lot of work that goes into it, but yeah. What's your TikTok for anybody listening or watching? What's my what? Oh, my TikTok. TikTok. It's, I keep it all real simple. All my handles are Abby Fickley. Um, That's my first and last name. So my TikTok is Abby Fickley. My Instagram is Abby Fickley. And those are really the two the two main places you can find me. I Abby I, with oh, an E. Abby, yes, Abby A-B-B-E-Y. Road. I was named after Abby Road. My dad is oh, a no Beatles fan. Yes, yeah, so A B B E Y. I have let it no be way. right there. Oh my um, God. That, that was my third step. Oh, my, that was my third step. I was refusing to say let go, let God. Um, so I told my sponsor I would get let it be tattooed on me to prove how much I want it, but I wouldn't say the word God. And You're he, lying. You went that I far. I swear to God. <laughs> yeah. Um, I went to a graffiti artist the next day who I met in AA, and I said, hey, you do amateur tattoos in your front yard in Venice, right? She's like, yeah. I was like, I need Let It Be for my third step. She was coming by tomorrow. And then she did my entire arms while I was out there. We would do AA meetings. 
So can I ask how you feel about let go and let God today then? I'm a lot better with it. I don't. I still okay. don't. I just don't use the word God. Yeah, which um, is cool. Bill, Bill marries. Bill marries my higher power. That's well, listen, why he's I over my shoulder as Jesus. Well, can I tell you my higher power is? It's Larry David. Oh from my Curb. God. He's my I, best oh, friend. I was just watching Seinfeld before we got on this episode. Were you really? Oh, yes, Curb, of course I was. Oh, Curb is my shit. Listen, I'll take either one, but Curb's my favorite. I, I love Curb. Yeah, of, and I, uh, I, people have such a fear of the freaking the, the religion. And I always tell people that you don't have to be religious. So I'm really glad that you that you mentioned that. Yeah, Make Bill your Murray, higher power who, whatever you Bill want. Bill Murray, yep. And Murray, I love it. Bill Murray. My, my friend that did all my tattoos, I'm like, hey, can you paint that for me? Can you paint oh, Jesus? You? Yeah. Yeah, she's painted a lot for me. That's also her bunnies right there. The oh, bunnies that are humping right there. Dude, love it. Those are uh, those are muck bunnies. She's very famous in LA. Um, oh, muck rock is her like tag. Yeah, Ven is on the west side, but like now okay. she's in San Pedro. Okay. She just bought a house in San Pedro. She's oh, a good for her. time muralist. So wow, that, you that's know, you sick. That's how good of a muralist she is that yeah, she could buy must... a house in San Pedro. No, honest to God, I know that's the first like, thing. Like you must be doing well. Yeah, I want to run some names by you actually in a second. I'm gonna say. Well, thanks again, and I'm going to... You're so welcome. Thank you so thank, much thank, for having thank me. Thank you. I really appreciate it.